0: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Maria Schechtman, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Her new book, Staying Alive, Personal Identity, Practical Concerns, and the Unity of a Life, is just out from Oxford University Press. What is it to be the same person over time, The 17th century British philosopher John Locke approached this question from a forensic standpoint. Persons are identified over time with an appropriately related series of psychological states, in particular a chain of memories, and our interest in identifying persons in this way stems from our interest in holding people responsible now for what they did in the past. Locke's psychological account of persons remains highly influential today while well, the rooting of that account in practical concerns, rather than, say, broader metaphysical positions, is somewhat more contentious. In her new book, Maria Schekman builds on Locke's idea of a forensic unit to provide a new account in which a much wider range of practical concerns, including the many different ways in which we treat others in everyday interactions, are constitutive of being a person. Sheckman articulates her view in relation to prominent contemporary views, and in particular Eric Olson's influential animalist account, in which human persons just are human bodies. Let's turn to the interview.
1: Hello, Maria Sheckman, are you there? Yes, I am. Hello, Carrie. Hi, welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thank you. Thank you so much for asking me to be here.
0: Uh, well, I'm uh, looking forward to our conversation about your new book, Staying Alive, Personal Identity, Practical Concerns, and the Unity of a Life. Um, and we'd like to start with a little bit of background about our uh, the people that we are talking with. Um, so maybe you can give us a little background on yourself and on how you came to write the book.
1: Sure. So... I am Chicago born and raised. Um, I have lived here almost all of my life. Was an undergraduate at the University of Chicago, where I studied philosophy. I went to graduate school at Harvard, and then I came back to Chicago to take a job at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and I have been here ever since. So I'm very geographically stable, and I. Um, I've always been interested in the topic of personal identity, which is the topic of this book. I think even before I decided I was going to study philosophy, I knew that that was a thing I was interested in. And one of the things that drew me to philosophy was that it gave me so many tools for studying questions like that. And this book, um, there were actually a few incidents that led specifically to this project in the context of the work I had been doing. So, up until the time I started working on this book, uh, I had been working on developing a sort of alternative to the typical way of understanding Lockean accounts of personal identity. So when I was in graduate school, Reasons and Persons came out, Parfit's book. It was a big deal. Um, it was very influential. But I had some disagreements. I felt somehow what I found attractive in Locke wasn't captured there. And I really liked the Lockean account. So I tried to develop an alternative to the psychological continuity theory, and I developed a narrative view, and I worked on that for a very long time, trying to fine-tune it and and in different ways develop and defend it. But then two things happened that made me start to question the whole Lockean picture of personal identity, at least as a metaphysical account of personal identity, and the two were interconnected. One was that I had the opportunity to be on a panel at the Berman Institute, which was really wonderful, in which philosophers of personal identity interacted with clinicians in neurology, talking about how they would view questions of personal identity in various fictionalized case studies. And all of us on the panel, the philosophers, had some version of a Lockean account of personal identity and the clinicians were just horrified that our of <laughs> personal identity excluded most of their patients from personhood. Wow. And so, you know, we tried to explain, well, this is a very technical use of person, and it's an honorific, and it doesn't mean that your patients have no moral status. But the more I interacted with them, the less comfortable I felt saying that people who didn't have reflective self-consciousness and moral agency in a strong sense and so on, were persons, not just because it made me feel morally queasy, but because it just seemed wrong. I mean, if we think when we're talking about personal identity, we're talking about the identity of the people that we interact with, the people we know and work with and so on. Uh, It did seem like clearly they're there, even when they don't have some of the forensic capacities that Locke talks about. So that got me thinking. And At roughly the same time, animalism uh, was becoming very popular and there was a lot of discussion of Eric Olson's book, The Human Animal in particular, which argues that you can't build a metaphysics of beings like us or talk about our literal uh, conditions of numerical identity and persistence based on practical considerations like those Locke brings up. So the animalists were saying, you know, look, a Lockean conception of personhood might be a great way of talking about attributes that individuals might have, but it's not how you individuate beings like us. Beings like us are, in fact, human animals, human organisms with biological rather than psychological persistence conditions. And one of the um, arguments that animalists typically use to show this is to say, um, look, if you believe that the Lockean conception of we are Lockean persons and that the conditions of our persistence are those that Locke gives or that psychological theorists give in general, then that means that when a child, a human child, comes to gain reflective self-consciousness or the capacity for moral agency, a new thing enters the world that wasn't there a moment ago or you know, a week ago or whatever, mm-hmm. but is materially coincident with it. Um, and similarly, if someone gets dementia, then an object ceases to exist that was there and is somehow replaced with a materially coincident one. And, and that just doesn't seem right. So this seemed to jibe with what the, what I had thought in response to the neurologist and in general made me wonder, could a Lockean account uh, of personhood serve as the basis for a metaphysics of beings like us? And then. Uh, The flip side of that, the the one last piece of the puzzle was, although I became convinced it couldn't, I didn't like the way animalists were going with that. Um, I felt that saying that therefore practical and metaphysical considerations needed to be completely separated wasn't satisfying either. Mm -hmm. So I set out to say, is there um, a way of thinking about personhood and personal identity where the the conditions of individuation and continuation of beings like us is inherently tied to practical concerns, but nevertheless doesn't run into the problems that the Lockean view does. And that's what I'm doing in the book. And so that's how I got to this project. Okay. Um, well, that, that uh, kind of sets us up
0: for the first question, which um uh, involves the ver- the first chapters where you introduce the the general Lockean account, the idea of a forensic unit uh, versus what you call a moral self, you know, con- contrasting it with, uh, I think, Horse Guard. Um, and one of the important points you make in the beginning chapter, or two chapters, is this idea that practical concerns are, in some sense, constitutive of personhood, or that that the the forensic unit is, is is dependent on, conceptually dependent on, uh, rather than in some sense just contingently related to practical concerns. So um, um, how do you show that? What's your, what's your argument for that constitutive or inherent or intrinsic connection?
1: Right. So um, I should first, I guess, say that in some sense I really don't have an argument for it or not a direct argument for it um in some ways the the way that i'm proceeding is to say i think that you know the Lo- the lockean conception and the idea that persons are inherently practical beings um has had a really strong pull and has been very compelling to a lot of people there are these really serious objections to it from animalism is there a way to avoid those objections while still retaining this core insight? And so part of the motivation for doing it is just saying the, in, the intuition, the, the sense, the plausibility that is already there. Um, so is there a way to capture that without running afoul of the um, problems that, that the analysts raise? That said, though, I mean, I do think that there are reasons to think that we're inherently practical beings. Um, There are considerations in favor of it, but not direct arguments. The reason that I think that there aren't direct arguments is basically incredibly fundamental meta-philosophical. Okay. What I hope to do throughout the course of the book in developing the account is to show not only that it is possible to develop a practically-based account of our identity, and personal identity, but also that when you see the details of that account, it comports better uh, with things that we believe about ourselves, including facts about biology, I would argue, than does the animalist view. So... um, I need for the details of the view to give some of the motivation. Okay. So um, maybe you could go into some of
0: the or, or maybe the main objections that are presented by animalists to mm-hmm. the forensic unit or, or forensic approach and then how you resolve the, that problem or those problems.
1: Yeah. So maybe um, one thing to do first is to sort of distinguish Two things: the forensic unit idea, as opposed to the moral self, is is within the the project already of trying to answer the animalist. So, at the most general level, the question, the place where I'm disagreeing with the animalist, is on the question of whether um, practical, social, psychological considerations uh, should be part of. Or could be part of what determine our persistence conditions, or of what we most defining what we most fundamentally are. And basically, I take um, the analyst to be saying: if you take the Lockean conception, where a person is uh, an intelligent being with reason and reflection that can consider itself, you know, as itself, or you take a typical psychological approach, where the conditions of our persistence are psychological um, rather than biological you end up with a lot of metaphysical awkwardness. So basically the problem arises in the following way. What the animalist says is, well, human organisms seem to be a type of thing or human animals. So where there's a human animal, there's a thing that has biological persistence conditions. If we say that human persons are fundamentally persons and not animals, then that means where there's a human person, there are really two things, uh, an animal with biological persistence conditions and a person with psychological persistence conditions. And if we are persons, we're led to have to say all sorts of awkward things like, I was never an infant, I was never a fetus, because, of course, I can't be psychologically continuous with either an infant or fetus, or I could never become a human in a vegetative state, because in a vegetative state, right, there's no psychological entity there. And then I think probably um, one of the biggest problems that animalists raise and the hardest for me is what has been called the too many thinkers or thinking animal problem or something like that, which is, well, if there's a human person sitting here conversing with you and thinking about what to say next, and if the person is a psychological being distinct from, not identical to the animal, then there seem to be two different entities sitting here thinking about what to say to you. First, there's a person who's thinking that. But since the person is, unless you're a dualist, right, a substance dualist, materially, then uh, it seems that um, the animal also has to be thinking the thought. It's hard to say why there couldn't. So there, there seems to be this sort of ontological promiscuity where there are just too many entities. So in any event, the real thrust of the animalist objection is to say that all of these metaphysical quandaries can be resolved if you just say look, practical questions are practical questions. They're ethical questions, they matter a lot to us, but they need to be asked about some entity. And determining what that entity is, is independent of our practical concerns. There's no reason that our practical concerns, what we humans care about, should tell us what there really is in the world. Um, and what I want to do is show a respectable way for our concerns to tell us what there really is in the world. And my strategy, my basic strategy for doing that is just to, in some sense, um, naturalize the notion of practical concerns. And what I mean by that is to say if we expand our conception of what our social and psychological practical concerns are, if we don't limit it just to the very strictly forensic ones that um, Locke thinks about, but we instead think of all of the ways in which we care about one another, then that's really part of um of our nature in a very fundamental way and not so separable from our animal nature uh, in the end. That if you think of humans as animals who are social and enculturated and so on, um, then what you'll see is that these practical conceptions are as fundamental, are these practical interactions, these practical concerns are as fundamental um, as the biological ones that the animalists, the biological features that the animalists talk about. So that's pretty abstract. I, I should probably find a way to to make it more specific.
0: Well, let me let me. Um, I mean, you do go. Uh, I think in chapter three or so, uh, when you uh, you do expand the uh, the range of what <laughs> is considered practical interests or practical concerns. In relation to some work by uh, Hilda Lindemann, mm-hmm. and you discuss there the sorts of cases um, anencephalic infants um, alzheimer 's patients right in particular the the people that presumably clinicians raised for you when you first embarked on right. on modifying the the Lockean account right i mean they were showing you, hey, wait a minute, all these very thick you know, very philosophical in a way. Uh, capacities. Well, we have we have our beds filled with lots of people who don't have these capacities. Right. Um, and so, in that chapter, you know, in response to or in by comparison with with Lindemann's account, you do uh, expand on some of these practical concerns, including uh, various. Um, uh, relationships of of social recognition at a very basic level. So maybe, maybe that's how you might flesh out the account a bit more.
1: Right. And maybe en route to doing that, I can go back to the question that you asked earlier that I never really answered about the forensic locus and the moral self, because I think that will be helpful also in making this clearer. So if the goal is to say that Um, persons are beings whose identities are inherently connected to practical concerns. There's sort of two questions then that need to be answered. One is what is the nature of this connection? What's an inherent connection? And that goes back to the conceptual issue you raised. And the second isn't what are the practical concerns? So the fleshing out is the practical concerns, but the distinction between the, um, the moral self and the forensic unit that has to do with what is the nature of the connection between personal identity and practical concerns. And so there, what I want to do is um, make a distinction between a view that says the limits of the person are set by the renderings of certain particular judgments, practical judgments, and a view that says that there's a looser connection. So, to just give an example of what I mean here, um, go back to Locke, and Locke, right, says that person is a forensic term, and so it's connected to moral responsibility and self-interested concern, and many people take the Lockean position to be something like this. So a person is a unit of moral responsibility, let's say. Just for simplicity, let's focus on moral responsibility. What you do is If you see a person at time two and you want to know if he's the same as the person at time one, you say, can he be held responsible for what the person at time one did? Because roughly speaking, we can only be held responsible for what we do. And if the answer is yes, he can be held responsible, he is responsible for the earlier person's actions, then they're the same person. And if the answer is no, then they're not. And so the limits of the self are set at what we're morally responsible for in that case. Um, this is something, this is a conception of the person that has been um, developed in ethics and practical reasoning quite a lot. And so that's where I refer to people like Korsgaard or Frankfurt who say, look, there's some crude literal conception of the person or personal identity, but then there's this other one that has to do with what's really you in the sense that it comes from you as a moral agent or an autonomous being. And that's the conception of the moral self. And that draws a very close connection between this particular practical consideration and personal identity. The one defines the other. They have to be coincident. And what I want to say is there, there's a looser relation, which is um, even if we don't know whether someone is rightly held responsible for a particular uh, action in the past, let's say in this very strong way that people like Frankfurt and Korsgaard are asking about, we can know whether they are the person who will be responsible. If anybody is, they're the right person to raise the question about. And the distinction I think can be made um, clearer by contrasting two kinds of thought experiments that get used in discussions of personal identity a lot. And so one is just the familiar, what I call a transfer case, where the psychological life of one person is transferred into the body of another. So this is Locke's famous prince and cobbler case, where the consciousness of a prince comes to inhabit the body of a cobbler, and Locke says he would obviously be responsible or the cobbler's actions, this new person, or the prince's actions, the person with the cobbler's body and the prince's psychology, um, rather than the cobbler's because he has the prince's psychology. So this is just a transfer, a wholesale transfer um, of psychological life. And that obviously is supposed to have some connection to assessing responsibility. But then there's another kind of question or, or thought experiment we use that has to do with psychological change where there's no transfer of psychology to a different body or anything like that. There's just transformation. Right. So we take someone who was, you know, an angry young man who lashed out and caused problems, or let's say the prince when he was young was a terribly spoiled prince, <laughs> who was horrible to, to all of his subjects. But as he has matured, he's become more clear headed and more compassionate And is now a very wise monarch. And people say, well, you know, can we blame the current prince who is now so wise and ready to ascend the throne for what that spoiled prince 20 years earlier did, because, you know, he's really not the same person. Mm -hmm. These are two very different cases, both of which have to do with assessing moral responsibility. And so to, to show just how different they are, You can put them together, right? And you say, well, suppose that the prince was an awful, spoiled prince who then became a wise, you know, ready to be a wise monarch, and his consciousness got put into the body of the cobbler. Now, if you believe Locke, once we know that his consciousness is transferred to the body of the cobbler, we know that the cobbler-bodied, prince-minded person is the same person as the earlier prince. Mm Mm-hmm. But if we were perplexed about whether the, you know, mature prince should be held responsible for what the spoiled prince did when his consciousness was still in the prince body, we aren't going to solve that problem. We still don't know the answer to that question when the mature prince consciousness gets put into the cobbler body. But what we do know is if we're interested in asking that question, we now have to ask it about the person in the cobbler body because that's where the relevant consciousness is. So the idea of a forensic unit is um, there's some fundamental set of relationships that makes you the right kind of being to ask this particular, or the the particular right being to ask this particular question about. And what Locke is telling us is if you have a question about whether a mature prince should be held responsible for what um, young prince did, go wherever a mature prince's consciousness is, even if it's in a different body. Mm-hmm. And that's one point. That's about identifying the forensic unit, the thing about which the question can be asked. Um, but this other question about, now, is he really responsible? Is he the same person in this deep sense that Frankfurt Korsgaard and many other people are talking about? That's a different question. That's a question about the moral self. So what I want to say is that question can be taken off. That question, I don't think, can be a basis for metaphysics. But the question about the forensic unit really is, what's the thing about which we want to ask these practical questions? And so that's where I want to see the connection between the practical and the metaphysical. That's the kind of practical question, the one where you try to identify the entity about which the question is appropriately raised um, as something that sits at the intersection between uh, the practical and the metaphysical or as a practical kind of metaphysics or however you want to describe it. So that's the idea of a forensic unit. And then when I um, expand the kinds of concerns we can have, the kinds of interactions and practical questions that we ask about is, you know, is this toddler I'm picking up at daycare my child? That's an identity question. Um, And you can ask that even if the toddler isn't yet a Lockean person. So we have all these kinds of concerns. And so what I'm looking for is the unit about which we ask all those. This is my conception of what a person is at some level. This is the sort of conceptual link I want to draw between personhood and the practical is saying that to be a person is to be a unified locus of all these different kinds of concerns that we have. So um,
0: the way you just put that, you know, makes I think very, very clear how in a sense, and you do see this later in the book, how you draw on, you know, biological as well as, you know, psychological and sociological, you know, relationships, concerns, in your account, so you don't reject the biological view so much as um, build in aspects of it into your into your more complicated view. Um, well, maybe I should just—I mean—that kind of jumps us forward a bit. Um, so. Uh, Maybe, well, since it's come up now, maybe we should just uh I should just ask that question How do you see your view related to um the animalist account
1: right, yeah, so that's um that's sort of the heart of the, the story, I think, in a certain way. Because right. you started by saying that I don't reject the biological view. And in some sense, that's true. But I do reject it as it's usually yes. expressed. So the way that it's usually expressed is um, to say, look. There are there's the quest, there's a metaphysical question about what kinds of substances we are, what our substance concept is, what the fundamental, you know, attribute that we must have in order to continue being is what our essential nature as different people put it differently. That's one question. And then there's the question of, you know, what that fundamental thing can or cannot do and what it typically does or does not do and what's important to us about it. And these are all separate questions that really have no bearing on what it is or whether it continues. There are these metaphysical facts and then there are these other facts that are more practical or, or ethical or whatever. And then the other thing that the, the biological view says is that and our persistence conditions are biological and they are not psychological. There doesn't need to be any kind of psychological continuation, psychological factors don't factor in, features don't factor in at all, to determining whether or not the thing persists. It's a purely biological question. And, you know, one of the things, you know, that led me to the book is that much in animalism is very attractive to me, and there is this way in which it seems to me that although lip service is paid by psychological theorists saying, yes, usually psychological and biological continuity go together and so as an epistemological fact that's how we individuate people and so on there's very little recognition of the fact that really one fundamental way in which we think about people is as other humans as as, you know we individuate i mean it's not just a an epistemic criterion the humanness of the people we interact with is a very important part of what they are for us um The part that I reject in animalism is to make the humanness fundamental in the way that they do. That's one way of putting it, or another way of putting it is to understand humanness the way they do as really just being about biochemical uh, interactions. I think in general, thinking about organisms simply in terms of inner biochemistry instead of, say, the way in which they interact with their environment is a mistake. And I think, you know, biologists are, of course, very concerned with how uh, individual organisms interact with the environment. And, of course, what goes on with the internal biochemistry is not unrelated (laughs) to the environment they're in and how they need to interact with it and so on. So in a way, what I'm doing is saying, well, if you really um, look at us, and how we interact with one another, what we do, and so on, um psychological, biological, and social factors of our lives are inherently in, interconnected, and by biological here I'm meaning the narrow kind of biological factors that analysts look on right. look at so and and so, my claim is you know sort of in the background is the idea of a second nature, the idea that we are the kinds of beings. Um, who naturally have these other components of our lives, that, you know, one way of putting it is what Lockeans and other psychological continuity theorists are trying to do is look at humans, because ordinary adult humans are our paradigms of persons. That's where, you know, when we're that's where we start when we're trying to say what a person is. And they say, well, what is it that beings like that have that other animals don't have that, that make us think that they're, There is something special or a new dimension or a new layer here. And what they look at is, you know, rational, the capacity for rational reflection, reflective self-consciousness, moral agency, and those kinds of things. And what I do, and then they say, so an individual must have those to be a person. And what I do when I try to say what's special about us, what differentiates us from those other beings that we think are not persons, is to look not at so much at individuals, but at our social organization to say what it is that sort of distinguishes the things that seem clearly to be persons uh, from non-persons for us can be found in enculturation and all that that gives. There's this extra dimension of our lives because humans have developed culture um, where culture is understood broadly as a set of practices, um, beliefs, and infrastructures that are taught from generation to generation and that structure the form of life, including, you know, our most basic biological functions obviously and that have impact on our biological functioning. So what I say is what's special about enculturated beings is that they live lives in which biological psychological and social elements are so tightly interconnected and work together to mutually support, the the continuation and and way of life that separating them um, is artificial. And so what I was looking for was this locus of practical concerns. And I say this is a a kind of thing that exists only where there is culture, but it's rooted in biology, right? Because culture is rooted in biology Mm -hmm. um, and in psychology, which is also rooted in biology, but they all influence one another, so where I sep- where I distinguish myself from animalists is that I I don't see biochemical functioning as the bottom line story about what we are. I think all of these elements being you know, to, to borrow a, a term from seventh grade health for me, we are biopsychosocial beings and and uh, fundamentally so okay, so um...
0: Kind of circling back to the question that I act early asked earlier about your widening of the practical concerns beyond just the forensic, you know, responsibility relationships. Um, so you discuss and and th- these cases cases of Alzheimer's patients are very clear cases where you're not having someone who has those very thick. Reflexive self consciousness and and so forth. And yet, there are these relationships that you talk about specifically, you know, in response to uh, Lindemann's account, um, where there are, where the more biological and social aspects uh, kind of come to the fore. Um, And you also distinguish that from, say, the relationships that you have with, uh, say, your pet cat. Um, you know, and that's not meant to trivialize those two things, but it, but in fact, um, you know, other animals besides human animals are also part of our social social networks in some way, um, although perhaps not in the way that enables them to be counted as persons, as opposed to somebody in a persistent vegetative state or Alzheimer's is part of our social network in a way that does have them um, count as persons. So can you say a bit about uh, that widening of the forensic unit to include those sorts of very basic um, relationships, which, you know, I take it were inspired by the interaction you had with with clinicians?
1: Sure. Yeah, so... um you know, a lot of there's sort of a lot to say about it. And so first, I'll, I guess I'll say a little bit about why I include them um, and then try to say a little bit about why uh, I, this allows me to include sort of, uh, you know, very cognitively uh, challenged individual humans as persons or even someone, you know, sort of degeneratively as someone in a, in a vegetative state and not a very clever cat who's a very fundamental part of a family unit in some way. So yeah. so first to say why I include them, I mean, part of it is just, you know, thinking about if you first to take, you know, just the normal or the ordinary or the typical developmental trajectory. So so the, the view that I give, I call the person like you, and so I do – borrow from animalism the idea that the individuation and persistence of persons should be defined in terms of a life but I say it should be a person life rather than a merely biological life and by a person life I mean it has these other dimensions the psychological and social which are not just added on top of the biological but interacting with it um, in a very fundamental way which I'll say something about as I as I go here, so one thing about a life is that it's diachronic, right? A, a life occurs over time, and another thing about a life, which is something I just take from Olson when he's trying to say what a biological life is as opposed to just the career or something, is that it has a standard developmental trajectory. It doesn't always follow that trajectory, but there is some developmental aspect to it. And I say, you know, that's true of a person life, of course, because, uh, you know, for now, just focusing on human persons, um, if you take a human infant, there is an expectation that it will develop in a particular way, ultimately into somebody with all of those thick, Lockean and forensic capacities and may someday lose them. So part of what I'm saying is that You begin interacting with in a human culture. We begin interacting with any human as a person, sort of immediately. Mm -hmm. And so, one of the reasons that I think, you know, so so Olson, Eric Olson says, isn't it weird to say that you've got a human child, and then, you know, when it gains these reflective capacities, suddenly there's a new thing. And he says, obviously, that's weird because there was a single material entity there all along. And that may be true, but I also think that it's more weird. I mean, when we, when we think it's a weird thing to say, it's less because there was a single metaphysical substance there all along and more because we already, you know, if you're a parent, you already have a very rich set of interactions and a very deep relationship with this child who develops these things, you've scaffolded the development of reflective self-consciousness. You've seen it come on. Right. And so it's all very continuous. And the, you know, person who emerges with uh, the Lockean person who emerges with all of these attributes is in no way unconnected in a very practical sense. I mean, there are ongoing practical interactions and concerns. And so one of the examples i use is, you know, if I'm concerned to, you know, make sure that my baby is, you know, happy and, and stimulated and so on. And then later on I have a, you know, high schooler who I'm worried about them doing well on a test or something. It's not like there's a disconnection between those two things or I'm worried about them passing some moral challenge or something it's all continuous and it's all part of a rich set of associations uh, and networks. And so part of what I want to say is, I mean, not only are there a lot of different kinds of concerns besides just those about the assessment of moral responsibility and self-interested concern, but that even those are rooted in and connected to a whole bunch of more basic concerns. So when you've got the Alzheimer's patient who can't even remember you is your mother, and did take care of you, and um, you know things about her that can help to soothe or comfort, even though she doesn't recognize that it's you, there's an ongoing set of interactions that's connected to the ones that went before, when, you know, she was mother with all of her faculties, from whom you learned all kinds of wonderful things. And so... The idea is that, you know, taking the notion of a of a locus of concern or a unified target of concern, we care a lot about other people, some more than others, some in a wider, you know, uh, variety of ways than others. But we always have the presupposition that there's a single thing there about which we're caring. And so... Um, So that's how the widening, uh, goes. I don't, I mean, I I hope that that's enough to to explain what I mean by that. So now I I want to include all of the kinds of concerns that are part of, um, of our interactions with other people, some of which are the same as concerns we have about animals in our lives and, you know, other animals that are not humans in our lives and that are not persons and some of which are not. But also because I have this idea about the role of culture, I think all of our interactions with other humans are infused with the sense of them as being persons, that is, members of the culture in a particular way. Um, and so even these very basic interactions are different when what we've got is someone who is a human person than they are the cat. Um okay well let me
0: uh let me jump in here in a second to to pick up on something that you said that I thought was very illuminating about the interaction with the infant
1: mm-hmm. where
0: there's a continuity there in terms of you use the term scaffolding mm-hmm. uh those interactions scaffold the development of the reflective self consciousness mm-hmm. and I think that's you know that's absolutely correct and it's exactly what what your view should say. Um, so then the question, so there are two different sorts of questions that might come up in response to that. Uh, one is when you have an infant, like with, you know, severe down syndrome or anencephalic, where the development of reflective self-consciousness is simply not even on the table. Um, and, uh, and so that's where sort of an animalist or someone who's more strongly, you know, who wants to make the biological f- fundamental as opposed to this more complex nexus, uh, that's where they're going to kind of press the issue and say, you know, it's the biological thing that's really giving you the, the continuity in those cases, um, given that you, you one wants to include even infants that are so so impaired among the persons. Mm -hmm. Um, The other, so that's, that's one, one issue. Uh, Mm -hmm. Another is, okay, well, if you do have these sort of thick, whatever answer you give to that question, Mm -hmm. then you've got the question of, you know, cats or non-human animals um, who have various degrees of Uh, of psychological capacities, including, in some cases, apparently, um, some sort of self-consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you – the question then would be, to what extent does your view, by expanding the range of practical concerns to beyond just the biological relationships and um, Mm – Uh, to what extent does that allow, excuse me, other animals uh, or even other entities, mm-hmm. right, who, that are not biological to be persons as long as they're with – as long as they have, say, the so-called sociolo- so, sociological and psychological aspects, then maybe the biological aspect – Kind of falls out of the picture, and to to kind of put that all together at the end, you do present what you call the the a cluster account, mm-hmm. um, and that's obviously going to play a role here. Um, so, could you you say something about those sorts of cases, both the the infants that sure. aren't going to that we know are not going to develop the thicker Lochian psychological properties um, and the animals that, you know, may have them to some extent, maybe not as thick. um, And then things that don't have any biological uh, continuity at all.
1: Right. So all of those cases are, of course, Mm -hmm. very difficult for me. I think the first thing you bring up is in some ways the hardest, right? So I, I want this view to include, as persons, infants who we know are never going to develop, you know, the thick, what I would call the locky or our forensic capacities, um, but yet to, say, exclude the pet cat. So how do you do that if the pet cat is going to develop cognitively just as much or more than the, the human infant? And how do you do that without saying so to be a person is to be human? Right. Right. The relevant question is being a human. So the answer uh, lies both in, as you say, cluster picture and also very much in the idea that personhood, although it has this strong social element, is not conferred on a case-by-case basis, right? We don't look at a human, and then decide, okay, this one's a person and that one isn't. So... The idea is that that what enculturation does, and so now I'll just start just with human persons and then try to get to the others and show how they fit. So so let's start with human persons, which is the paradigm. One thing that a culture has is a set of structures and practices um, about, in a human culture, how other humans are treated. And so it just happens for many reasons, not, you know, I mean, we don't sit down and decide this as a matter of convention. It emerges in the evolution of human species and uh, human culture, which is, you know, part of the human species, that we see our conspecifics, which other humans are, in a particular way. They play a particular role. Most creatures do, but we do it in this particular way that involves cultural norms as well as, you know, biological responses and so the idea is that first of all um, we will automatically see and and I believe cannot help but see but you know that I would be willing to, to talk about other humans as persons and what that means is that they're the kinds of beings that get names and if you baptize your kids and they're the kind that get baptized, or if you, you know, refuse to baptize your kids or the, the kind you don't baptize and that matters, um, they're the kinds of beings in our culture who get, you know, maybe um, a social security number or at least have their, you know, a birth certificate. There are all kinds of things um, that go with this. They sleep in beds, they, you know, dressing clothes and so on. Now, If you have, uh, and you have expectations, as I said, because of the typical developmental trajectory. Now, if you learn that those expectations are not going to be met in a particular case, um, the response isn't, oh, so this is some quite different kind of thing. The response is, so this is a person who's not going to be able to develop and do all these things um, that people. Usually can, but this one cannot. And, you know, depending on precisely what's going on, I mean, you talk about child um, with severe downs. Well, depending, I mean, you know, there are all kinds of relationships that are still there. Mm-hmm. It might not be the assessment of moral responsibility and it might not be, um, you know, teaching prudential reasoning but there's all kinds of going on picnics and watching movies and, you know, depending on the level of uh, the, the particular kind of disability or anomaly in question. Uh, and so, you know, at the very outside, the relationship might end up just being caregiving, but it's a particular kind of caregiving And so one example I use to show that we really do just think very differently uh, in these cases between cats, even really, really smart cats Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, you know, infants with cognitive challenges or, or humans with cognitive challenges is that if somebody gets told that their infant human daughter is never going to be able to learn to talk or hold a job or tie her own shoes, this is going to be, you know, a cause of great worry and a lot of emotion and, you know, you you might think how heroic that this family then set up a foundation and raised all this money to try to make sure that, you know, kids of this kind get all the best treatment they can. If someone gets told that their cat, their kitten that they just adopted, is never going to be able to hold a job or talk or tie her own shoes, um, they aren't going to worry about that. It's a different... Kind of thing, and that just shows that there is a different um, right. There's a different perception, a different set of expectations that are, which right, isn't surprising. And and while that different set of expectations is obviously rooted in the biology of the thing, um, it's nevertheless you know, and I, I don't want to deny that. It nevertheless is the case that part of what makes it the sort of thing it is, is the way those expectations work in the living of its life and the effect it has. And I mean, one of the things that I really do want to keep emphasizing and the scaffolding is a good example of this, but there are many others, is that it's it's not that the biology is fundamental and then this other important stuff goes with it because Biological functioning and biological composition is affected by the other stuff. And so, in the typical case, right, a child born as a very typical human infant is not going to develop the thick Lockean capacities without being integrated into the social world, right, in fundamental ways. Mm -hmm. So and just, you know, facts about how we digest and how our immune system works and all of those have to do with the fact that we have, you know, agribusiness and and uh, sewage and, and that sort of thing. So so the idea is that, that there is this, um, that the human infant, even the one that's very atypical, will be brought into the culture as a person and will live a life as a person in a way that a cat won't or can't and that this is non-arbitrary because right, cats and humans are very different. Um, and so, right, uh, there's that piece. And then for the, non-human, for the non-animal, let's say, um, I guess a couple of things I want to say is, is also, I mean, in terms of non-human persons, I do think absolutely that there can be non-human persons. So while your typical cat um, cannot be a person. Uh, the example I use in the book is if Mr. Peabody from, you know, from the the Rocky and Bullwinkle show were to show up and we had a dog who could really talk to us and invent a way back machine and, and do all of those things like Locke's rational parrot, we wouldn't have trouble calling it a person, though an anomalous one, And uh, the way in which I can justify that is to say what it is to be a person is to be able to function as a unified locus of these person-related interactions and concerns. And such a being would be able to do that, would be able to integrate itself into our society. I mean, Mr. Peabody was able to go to court and sue and do all of these wonderful things um, and invent. And the same for... Right. Non-biological persons. I mean, the, the thing is that you have to be able to um, to interact, to, to be in 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 the cultural set of interactions to be able to, to fulfill that role as a person. And so if you take the kinds of aliens or artificial intelligence robots that we see in science fiction, um, these films are or books are effective precisely because these are beings that, that although they're slightly alien integrate in many straightforward ways, you can have, you know, trade negotiations with them. You can drink with them at intergalactic bars. You can (laughs) do all these things that, that we know of um, and that we do with other people. So I think that the, the notion is flexible and how flexible is really an empirical question. Um, When is it too alien? And I do not uh, deny that other animals that live on our Earth that we know about might have cultural organizations that are invisible to us. Um, And then they would be persons of a different sort, I guess.
0: Um,
1: Okay, well that actually kind of
0: uh, leads to a question that was w- arising in my mind mm. um and we're this it 's kind of a big question mm-hmm. so we're running out of time and i but i 'll ask it anyway yep. um two two sentence answer <laughs> yeah um, yeah there's different kinds of persons person's business mm-hmm. uh, so I mean, on the cluster account, you didn't you didn't go into yeah. much detail on that. That's um, you know, it's just the idea that there's no basically no necessary and sufficient conditions that you have a, a variety of different relationships uh, and features to draw on—biological, psychological, and sociological—and there's no like no one of these that is is necessary and. and um, and so it's there's a certain flexibility there in terms of the criteria that count for being a person. And, that, and that, I think that flexibility is what allows you to say just what you did in terms of, you know, aliens or cyborgs or non-human animals who are maybe exceptions to their species or maybe we just don't recognize uh, – the social relationships in, in which they actually do have the capacity to enter. You know, we just don't let them. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, the, here's the question. There's, there seems to be a bit of a tension between this idea that uh, somehow the biological is not fundamental. That's the animalist view. And the idea that somehow we're going to be able to you know rule out certain things as being persons because they don't satisfy uh, they're not they're not humans. Um, and they are only but, but they're satisfying the other sorts of criteria, at least to some limited extent and saying, well, they're not really persons because their species isn't. Um, you know, even if in a particular case, you know. Mm-hmm. So th- there seems to be a little bit of a tension there between the role that the biological plays in in the account, and and when you said at the very end there, well, there may be different kinds of persons that seems to be uh, somewhat of a different answer to the question of what it is to be a person. There's the question mm-hmm. of what it is to be a human person, and then there's the question of what it is to be a person in general. Um, so what is the role of the biological here? I mean, I, I'm right. kind of pointing out, a there just seems to be a little bit of a, a you know tension or unclarity or something about yeah, you know, human biology, the role that it's really playing in the theory.
1: Right. So, so I, yeah, maybe it's easier in a way to begin. And I, I realize time is short by saying not what the role of biology is, but to go back to what's the role of those Lockean forensic capacities for reflective self-consciousness and so on. Cause I seem to want to let things that are not human in, if they have those,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I, right? um, But then I want to let humans in, even if they don't have those. But what about cats? So here's how I see where the Lockean uh, picture still comes in. To be a person uh, is to be able to be integrated into a culture, taking the role of a person. And there could be no cultures and persons unless there was a group of whom it was typical to develop these Lockean capacities, right? So beings without reflective self-consciousness, um, beings without the capacity for planning and for moral agency, and so on, could not develop a culture. So those, uh, I, those capacities do play a crucial role in personhood, but just not via possession by a single individual. A single individual need not have them. You need to have the cultural infrastructure. And then I think in uh, cultural infrastructure, those uh, there is a, a, an assignment of a kind of role that can be played even by those who don't have the capacities typical um, of that group. And so... Um, That role, so so, I mean, there's a way in which um, I think that cats, it's not just that they aren't human and we say they're not human and so we don't want them in there, but that even the ways in which we interact, so many of the ways we interact do have to do with our embodiment, that even the ways in which cats are integrated into our lives um, is very different from the way humans with even lesser capacities are integrated into our lives. Um, We can't feed them the same way. Um, You know, they, they can't, I mean, they're just various differences. I mean, you know, they they purr, they have claws and all that sort of thing. So that's why I think um, when you've got someone who fits in in an anomalous way as an infant who is never going to develop the ordinary uh, capacities does, then it's very, then the embodiment is very important because that's all you've got going. And that's going to be very different between the cat and the infant. Mm -hmm. But I also think that the Lockean forensic capacities are so central to the development of what is uh, unique about persons that if there could be, and here I'm very agnostic, um, other beings that showed, that could display those, recognize and interact with, even if they didn't have all this other stuff that a human infant uh, without the, the typical cognitive capacities did, then that, individual could be integrated and it would be a different kind of anomaly. Mm-hmm. So um so you could have a non-human person in that way. And so that is why the cluster notion is very right. The cluster ideas um to be a person is to have this these biological so that the paradigmatic person, which is a an adult human, I mean it's our concept after all. Um, has these different factors that work together to support one another. And some of them can be compromised. Any one of them can be compromised and compensated in another way. But there's some point at which the whole thing is so compromised that we no longer have an integrated unit. And here I borrow from the idea of a living being that has all kinds of different systems, you know, circulatory, respiratory, neurological, endocrine, that work together to sustain the be the, you know, the, the organism as a unit, um, those some can be compromised and compensated, but there's some point at which it just stops hanging together as a unit. And so that's the general idea, but at the level of, of bio psycho psychological, sociological, you can have some but not the others. But if you have too few of any, mm-hmm. you can be included. Good, good.
0: Um okay well let me just ask a final question which is uh where do you go from here are you do you have a, a follow up sort of project in the works or are you switching to something entirely different
1: That is an excellent question um well, I think that you know I will continue obviously always uh and as this conversation has shown questions arise about what you did that, that will lead you off in answering them in other ways but I do think that one thing that I'm going to go to next is actually in some ways a step back. Um, what is not playing a big role here is the first person point of view in this particular book. As I did, the, the narrative conception that I developed earlier was all about first person point of view and what it was like to continue from the inside. And that was what I worked on until I got to this. And then in this book, Book, I say very little about the first person point of view. So, one thing I want to do is go back. Um, I have ways in which I want to amend my earlier perception of what it is to have continuity from the first person perspective, to survive from the first person perspective. And I want to work on developing that and seeing how it fits into what I've done in this book um, and bring sort of the two pieces together. Okay. Well,
0: I appreciate your taking the time to talk with us about your new book.
1: Oh, I enjoyed it so much. <laughs> and uh,
0: I, uh, I look forward to having to seeing your your future work on, on these issues and others. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Maria Schechtman, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Illinois at Chicago. We've been talking about her new book, Staying Alive, Personal Identity, Practical Concerns, and the Unity of a Life, which is just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoy the podcast, and thank you for listening.